Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode of Real Talk with Zuby is brought to you by our sponsors, OZ Lifestyle Brands. OZ Lifestyle Brands care a lot about the details. Their selection of men's accessories balance style with substance and quality and craftsmanship, showcasing both casual and classic designs. They also make shopping really easy for you. You can just go check out their website, ozlifestylebrands.com. They've got a fantastic selection of watches, wallets, t-shirts, and other accessories especially designed for men with ultra-discerning tastes. OZ is for men who have found their calling but don't feel the need to shout about it. So I recommend you go check out their full range of products over at OZLifestyleBrands.com. To let them know that I sent you and to get 20% off your entire first order, just use the code ZUBYMUSIC at checkout. That is ZUBYMUSIC, Z-U-B-Y MUSIC at checkout to get 20% off your entire order at OZLifestyleBrands.com. OZLifestyleBrands.com, go check them out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on another special guest. This is Peter McCormack. He is the host of the What Bitcoin Did podcast as well as the brand new Defiance podcast. Welcome to the show, Peter. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on, Zuby. It's been great following you this last few months, what's been going on with you. So uh, great to finally chat. Yeah, man. It's always funny talking to people who you've been chatting online with on Twitter, just seeing that little profile photo. Now, now I'm still seeing you on a screen. At least it's a bit bigger. And then uh, we will meet in person at some point. Yeah, well, we we nearly met in the US. I just couldn't get my cities on my last trip to cross over with yours. I I was always in the wrong side of the country, but like we'll do it here. We'll definitely meet up here and maybe sometime in the US because you got to come on my show as well. But uh, yeah, we'll meet in person. Also, you got to take me. You got to take me weight training. Oh, absolutely, man. We'll do it. So, for those who don't know you, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, an accidental podcaster now. Um, I used to work in advertising, did uh, did 20 years working in advertising, had my own agency in London, and then uh, went through a very dramatic divorce where kind of my life completely collapsed. So ended up quitting work in London, uh, took a year off work, uh, discovered Bitcoin, uh, started a podcast just for a bit of fun, and it's uh, ended up the last two years kind of taking over my life now. And uh, I'm in this kind of weird podcasting world where I'm carrying a lot of imposter syndrome and uh, trying to figure out what what this all means and where I take it all. But that's a, that's the brief, that's the brief uh, uh, history of what's happened. I, I hear that, man. So there's a lot you just said there. One thing I really like to do on this podcast, as it is called Real Talk, is I like mm-hmm. to go into people's stories a little bit more, as much as they're willing to, and talk a little bit more about how they got to where they are right now. So tell us a little bit about your life. Like, you know, what's the story of Peter? 
Yeah, just nothing really crazy or spectacular uh, to, as a childhood, just a very normal childhood. I live here now in Bedford, which is uh, about a mile from where I grew up. Uh, great mum and dad, hardworking. My uh, dad was an aircraft engineer for Monarch Airlines up at Luton Airport. And my mum was um, an Avon lady. Then uh, later in life, she trained to become a nurse. Yeah, very normal childhood. Brother and sister did everything uh, kind of normal, but I was uh, the youngest of three. And there was like a gap. I'm pretty sure I'm an accident, but they won't admit it. But uh, it was a four year. I don't think you have a boy and a girl, and then four years later you think, oh, let's have another child. But uh, but so being the youngest, I was the um, always the competitive one, trying to keep up with my brother and sister, and always had an interest in business and like running businesses. And you know, I set up a magazine when I was like 15, a heavy metal magazine. I used to oh, wow. go to yeah, it was good fun. I interviewed like Pantera and Corn and Biohazard, and used as to a, this as a 15 year old. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was um, we've got this venue in Bedford called Esquires and Skunk and Nancy played. And uh, I just went along with the dictaphone and went up to Skin, the singer of Skunk and Nancy, and said, oh, can I interview you? And she said, yes. So with everything, like your podcast is all about getting that first interview and then you've got to work the chain, right? And you get to know people and you get introductions. And she introduced me to another band. So I ended up getting four interviews and did this first issue, which... I printed at my mate Tom's, his dad's um, estate agent. So we went there and printed, printed 100 copies, gave it out. But I sent that out to the record companies. And then from there, I got to do my second issue because from the fanzine, having, having a physical copy, I got the interviews. And then, so I think I did five issues over the space of a year. And then kind of the internet started and I went to uni. I, I learned to program websites and I was at uni and like, uh, you know, I was completely in debt working in a Weatherspoons pub at th- like three quid an hour. And I got offered a, a week's, no, two week contract at a dot com in London during the boom offering me a 2000 pound a week. <laughs> Oh wow! So I qu- yeah, so I quit uni that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said to my dad, I was like, mm, he wasn't happy about. It. Well, actually, I tell you what happened. My sister was actually she was run over by a police car and uh, ended up in a coma in a uh, hospital. So I missed a good month of university, and I used that as an excuse to not go back. I deferred it, and then I said to my dad, I'm not going back. Uh, you know, I was earning 19 years old and, and probably making eight to ten thousand a month coding websites wow (laughs) yeah i know it's like amazing (laughs) that's pretty impressive but but what happened then with the industry crash and and my what i was earning gradually got less and less and less and i ended up taking a job at this uh, agency in bedford again nothing really dramatic just took a job and grew up to becoming the, the managing director i think i was 27 when i got that job and then realized I was growing the company, but wasn't getting any of the money. So I quit and went to London and set up a, an agency with my friend Oliver, who called McCormick Morrison. It went really well for eight years. We grew it to, I mean, nothing spectacular. It was, uh, peaked at 2.7 million turnover, mm-hmm. which sounds great, but you never really have the money in your pocket because as you grow a business, the tax rates, the times you pay the tax change, so the government's always getting the money from you and you're <laughs> growing the team. The only time you ever make money is when you stay static or you shrink in size because you've actually got them more money coming in that's going out. But that was going well. We had 35 staff. We had a Covent Garden office. It, you know, it was nice. I ended up marrying the mother of my two children and that's where it all went uh, crazy because th- three months into our uh, marriage, I found out she'd been having an affair with my best friend all year. Uh, oh. I found her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just been all weird. And I found a uh, photo of his shlong, which was sent a month before our wedding. So, Oh, my that- days. Yeah, so that ended that. I ended up oh a drug gosh. addict. Yeah. Holy crap! Yeah. What? Oh, no, yeah. Ca- ca- carry on. I, I'm 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 trying not to even interrupt, but my brain is just no. Whoa. Yeah, it was it was terrible. It was awful. You know, we had this massive wedding in London, and I ended up going very deep down the cocaine rabbit hole, uh, drinking a lot. I stopped going to work. The the company ended up folding, and it kind of all hit a peak or rock bottom. You would say when uh, there was just a I was buying uh, drugs on the Silk Road and I ended up one day, you know, at home and the post came, in came my cocaine and I ended up doing coke all day just on my own. Um, so I was so miserable and um, yeah, I ended up having something called an SVT where it's your heart rate goes like shoots up. It's like 200 beats per minute. Whoa. So an ambulance came and picked me up and yeah. Sorry, I ended what, up laying what, what year was this? I'm just trying to get a time frame. So that was 2014. So 2013 okay. is when I got married. 
it was like July, I got married, November, we split up. Then 2014, I ended up having the SVT and just laying in this hospital bed thinking, well, I got married six months ago and I had this company and everything was great. And now I haven't got any of it. And I'm a, essentially a drug addict and an alcoholic and a terrible father and my company's collapsing. And yeah, so the company ended up folding, but then everything kind of just started getting better. It was really weird. I kind of hit that rock bottom. I think another thing that kind of helped in one way was my mum got sick, which obviously was terrible. And, you know, she died a couple of years ago. She got cancer, but I ended up taking a year off work, uh, volunteering at the hospital she worked at. And then also I was spending time going over. So that was after I, um, sorry, that was after she died, but I was spending a lot of time going over to see her. You know, I started running. I went vegan. I I was meditating. I was doing all the things just to just to get over the drugs, because the doctor wanted to put me on antidepressants. And I did a Google search, and it said just yoga, meditation, and running. So I, that's what I did for a year, and kind of fixed it all. And and then the weird connection back to how this all kind of where I am now is when my mum was really sick. We wanted to get her cannabis oil as a treatment, which you obviously can't get in the UK. And and uh, I was chatting to my dad. I was like, well. <laughs> Dad, you know, you know, I had that, um, that cocaine problem. Well, <laughs> you know, you, you get it with this stuff called Bitcoin. You buy it online. So I ended up buying her the treatment, rediscovering Bitcoin, and two years later, here I am. Wow. There is so much there, man. Man, yeah, man. I could go in like 500 different directions on this. So when you were at that rock bottom point, geez, what was, what was going through your head, man? It was really tough because the girl I married, I loved. I really loved her. You know, we had two two children together, and yeah, I just I just really loved her. And I I guess I'd lost focus on the relationship as well. You know, it's it's, it's not a story where she's has an affair, she's all bad, and I'm all good. You know, the you, you have to self reflect when something like this happens and say, what did I contribute to this situation? But. I realized I was a mess. I, actually, there was one night that was particularly, that was even worse than the ambulance. I remember one night, it was about a week before the ambulance. Uh, I was at home on my own. So this is why I was getting the drugs because I was at home on my own, miserable. My wife wasn't there. She was with her new guy who was my friend and I was home on, on my own. So I used to always just, just buy cocaine to cheer myself up. And I remember one night I started doing it and I knew I had a, this was a problem because it went from, doing drugs to be high that I was doing it to feel level and so I would do I would do a line and then then I'd feel awful and then I'd do a line and feel normal and then then I'd feel awful again and I remember I would get in the shower and I'd try and lay in the bed and my heart was racing and and then I'd do another one I was like I'm, I'm, I'm a drug addict so and then a week later I ended up in hospital and I don't know I just kind of realized I was a mess I was kind of like look at this look at this I've lost my wife I'm a father, I'm a drug addict, and my company's crashing. Like, just like everything had gone terrible. But thankfully, everything since then has been great, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea about any of this part of your story. Yeah. And yeah. you don't show it, you know, from, from what, what I gather from interacting with you online and everything is, you, you know, you've got a very positive vibe. And man, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of, of how to phrase this. I'm trying to think it, of the it throws everyone. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because with some people, the backstory is a little bit less, less surprising. You know what I mean? Right. You can yeah. kind of see little hints of it, or maybe they'll mention certain things here and there. But in this case, it's kind of amazing how openly and frankly, you're, you're talking about all that very personal stuff and going from sort of as you as you put it, you know, kind of top of the world, have, having sort of everything to within a short space of time, kind of going going through this personal. So, how did you build yourself back up through it? Well, so like I said, I mean, I was I was suffering really badly with panic attacks. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, um, but a full panic attack is terrible. It feels like a heart attack. Okay. Um, and that was following the SVTs that was happening. And there was a particularly bad one. <laughs> you'll, you'll appreciate that. I've tried to explain this story to Americans, but they, they can't fully comprehend what this is like. I was on the underground traveling on the central line, and I collapsed with a panic attack. Just suddenly hit me. And what happens when you had a panic attack? You, your heart races instantly for, for no reason at all. You start sweating. You, feel, you just feel like you're dying. And I collapsed. 
I kind of fell off the the tube, and there was a one of the station um, masters, whatever they are, one of the people who calls out the trains coming. Mm-hmm. They called for an ambulance. I ended up sitting on the side of the track. And two paramedics came down. They took my shirt off. It was rush hour at Holborn, and I was like like a crowd around me, and I was having an ECG. Wow. And I was like, oh, this is the worst. And I kept having these panic attacks and feeling depressed and not able to sleep. So I went to the doctor. I was like, look, look, I need to kind of get over this. And like I say, he prescribed me uh, antidepressants and I didn't want to take them. So I sat in the car outside the doctor's afterwards and I just Googled alternatives to antidepressants. And that's where it came up with running, meditation and yoga. Mm -hmm. So that day I bought a pair of trainers and I started running and I pretty much spent a whole year running to the point I got my kind of 10K from an hour 10 down to 47 minutes. I ended up doing a half marathon in Barcelona. And then I ended up through a weird set of events because my mum got sick, so I went vegan. And because of that, through a weird set of events, I ended up at a, a yoga retreat in Italy run by a guy. Do you know Rich Roll? Yes, I do. Yeah. So I discovered his podcast and found out he was running this vegan retreat. So I went, I went on it and hung out with him and his wife and got to know them. And he was like, look, when you're in LA, you know, let me know. So I, I was out in LA. <laughs> so I was hanging out with him and I was like, and you know, getting everything back together, good shape, running lows, feeling good. And I said, look, I'm thinking of doing this podcast. And he was like, well, this is how you do it. Follow the Pat Flynn course. This is the equipment you need. And yeah, just through through a chain of events, ended up here where I am now. Yeah. Wow. Well, good for you, man. Seriously, yeah. good for you because there's people who go through a lot less than that and they let it take over and dominate their entire lives and mindsets and attitudes and they just stay in that slump for literally decades or an entire lifetime in some cases. Well, look, if I'm completely honest, there is still there's still things there. You know, and like sure. I, I would never say I'm fully healed from what what happened. Of course, it did stick with me for a long time. Like, there's a lot of things I regret. I I didn't handle a lot of it very well with regards to friends and you know my children. Like they got exposed to way too much stuff. And there's still things that like you know I, on on a relationship side of things, I st- there's still things I struggle with, right? But it's really weird. I've got this friend Louise who she's like a total hippie and believes in the universe and everything, which I don't. I just think everything's a coincidence or is what it is, <laughs> but she talks about this and she was like, you had to go through this, Peter. They're like, it, like it was necessary. And the funny thing is, Zuby is like, if I look at my life before all this happened, yes, I had, you know, the wife and the kids and the successful company. But if I really look at it, I'm really honest. Like, was I happy? No. You know, I, I was huge. I was a big 16 stone guy. Uh, I didn't like my job. You know, I didn't spend any time with my children. You know, it was crap. If I look mm-hmm. now, if you forget about the breakup, I'm in a similar position to you in that I get to travel the world, meet people. My, this is my job, is to have yeah. conversations with people. Yeah. And it's fascinating. So like 90% of everything since has been great. Awesome, man. So let's talk a little bit more about um, Bitcoin. How did you first discover yeah. Bitcoin and when did you first come across it? Well, I first came across it in 2013 when uh, a friend of mine said, oh, yeah, so there's this website where you can buy drugs. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, no, there's this website and all the drugs are really good because everyone's reviewed like Amazon. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> but yeah, look, it's called the Silk Road. He's like, yeah. you need to download this thing called Tor and you need Bitcoin. <laughs> I was like, all right, whatever. Check it, checked it out. Ended up buying from it. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I ended up trading a bit, trading a bit, but I was, wasn't trading real Bitcoin CFDs. I was trading on plus 500 and I made and lost a lot of money very quickly. And then, you know, because I'd gone through the drug thing and come off the drugs, I deleted my Silk Road and kind of forgot about Bitcoin. It was only when my mum got sick again that I, you know, I had to buy some Bitcoin to buy her the CBD oil. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't working. I had some money left over from my agency. And I just, you know, I was in Ireland, mum had passed. So I just said to dad, I think I'm going to buy a little bit of this Bitcoin. You know, if it goes up, it'll be a good thing. It was when it was about six, 700 pound. Mm-hmm. So, and I ended up putting, you know, quite a few thousand pound in. And then I was buying all the cryptocurrencies and, you know, again, made and lost a lot of money very quickly. Yeah. But during the process, hanging out with Rich, realizing I'm not a trader, I was like, I think the thing I can do here is create a podcast. And 
that was that's been a very interesting journey and over that time i've gone from like somebody who was a trader to interested in all cryptocurrencies to now entirely focused on bitcoin in in the cryptocurrency world and expanding a little bit into kind of human rights and freedom mm, that seems to be the typical sort of pathway maybe minus yeah. the uh, minus the silk road part but um yeah. <laughs> but that's an early, that's an early introduction um, what about you how did you discover it how did i discover bitcoin so mm. I first heard about it. So I, I studied computer science at Oxford. So I first heard about it, I want to say like pretty early, but I didn't look into it. I never, I never researched it. I never looked at it properly. It was just something I, I heard and I thought it was something like PayPal or maybe something like, I actually thought it was like an in-game currency or something mm -hmm. like that. I, I, just, I just heard the name, saw the title, but never looked into it until like 2017 is when I properly looked at it and researched it and understood it, understood what the value proposition was and was actually sold on it fairly quickly, uh, Bitcoin specifically in the whole cryptocurrency space and idea. Of course, there was the factor of like, whoa, look at these crazy gains that you know are being made. Look at how high this thing has gone and whatever. That, that sort of led me to getting involved in the crypto space. So that would have been about, about two, two years ago now. Like a lot of people, I'd heard of it before and you know, kind of kicked myself for not... Uh, investigating oh. it properly and everything like that but uh yeah, yeah that, that, that's my own story in that regard i did have a i did have a question that was on my mind what i was saying is it seems like a lot of people go through that pathway as kind of uh you know getting in to make make some quick money and seeing thing oh this is kind of interesting that kind of almost like gambling mentality and then people investing in a whole bunch of different cryptos and altcoins and then people becoming more bitcoin maximalish or maximalists and just moving towards bitcoin and then yeah. moving sort of wider in that space it seems like that's the sort of pathway of most crypto evangelists kind of yeah I, I can tell you why that happens as well okay but I, I, let me tell a bit of a story before that so have you listened to jamie bartlett's podcast the missing crypto queen that's on the bbc at the moment i have not no it's, it's really worth listening to. It's about the one coin scam. So I met him yesterday and we did an interview about that. But there's a girl who features through it who got totally scammed by it. And she lost £10,000 and a bunch of her friends lost like 250000 And I really wanted to talk to her. And the reason I really wanted to talk to her about it is because I think there's a big gulf between what Bitcoiners see as the world and see crypto and everybody else. I don't think they really understand what it's like for somebody new coming in here about cryptocurrency. And they have the kind of expectation that people should very quickly realize it's all about Bitcoin and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And just because they tell you everything else is a scam that you should believe them. I think they really miss, they don't understand what it's like for people coming in. And I, I had the same, you know, I came in, I thought, oh, look, here's all these technologies. This blockchain is going to change the world. We're going to have Bitcoin as money and this other coin is going to do this. And then over time, what you realize is that actually it, Bitcoin is king and it's king for a number of reasons. Um, a lot of it comes down to scaling and technology scaling. A lot of it comes down to com community. A lot of it comes down to the history. Some of it comes down to the security. But there's a number of reasons. I got there by speaking to a lot of people and trusting you know, I can't fully technically validate this all by trusting a bunch of people. So once I got there and sold all my, you know, we call them, you know, crap coins, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once I sold them all and I was fully Bitcoin, I was able to become focused. And then once you become focused on Bitcoin, you realize its use cases. You know, it can help sex workers. It can help uh, people living on author under authoritarian, authoritarian regimes. All these different places where people are having their money censored, Bitcoin can help them. So for me, it's suddenly then, okay, I'm really interested in this. And then because of that, you end up learning a bit about economics and you learn about politics. And I've seen you've done this as well. You, I, I don't know historically where you are or where you were, but I was definitely a s very socialist as a child and I've become very conservative in my adult life and spending a lot of time in America has helped that. And I think there's very, something very conservative about Bitcoin. Mm. Welcome to the dark side. The dark side. Yeah. Black pilled. No, I've been there since a child. <laughs> ah. yeah, yeah i haven't I've politically shifted i've just become more outspoken that's about it so you were a born you were born conservative i guess so in the in the modern day sense i mean if someone asked me if i was a conservative when i was like 16 i wouldn't have said yeah even now 
I'm a little bit hesitant to label myself, but I certainly lean conservative on quite a lot of issues. It depends on the thing. And I think the definition of conservative now actually is quite different from even what it was perhaps 10 years ago, to be yeah. honest. If, the, if that's what people want to call it, I don't, have any, I don't have any problem with the label. I just like to sort of be free of assigning them to myself so that I don't need to get locked into any one ideology or feel like I can't veer out of it or question it or challenge it or anything like that. But um, yeah, definitely never socialist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, t- tell us actually a little bit about how that transition happened. I'm curious. I will first say that I am quite confused politically at the moment. Right? Sure. Because I very much like a lot. So I've spoken to a lot of libertarians in doing the podcast, and I kind of like a lot of what they say about you know property rights and individual liberty and you know separation, like minimal if not no state. But I mm-hmm. do really struggle to to actually picture that world of no state. I just sure. struggle to picture it. I'm with and you. I do, and I do think whilst people say you know it should come down to volunteering, helping support others, I do feel like it's good to have a social fabric, something there to help people who are in difficulty. And I wonder if a chaotic anarchist state would be better. I I struggle to see it, but then I I understand the argument like, well, do you believe in coercion? If you don't believe in coercion, then you have to believe you. Yeah. And I really struggle that balance between the two. And it's definitely something I'm wrestling with at the moment. And perhaps also by speaking to so many people, I hear very well-reasoned arguments from socialists, from libertarians, from conservatives. Uh, it can be to, with gun rights. I hear very reasoned arguments for people who are for liberal gun rights, and I hear very reasonable arguments from people who want uh, uh, tighter gun rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I struggle really to pin myself to something and say I'm I'm that. Yeah, no, but, that's fair enough. I mean, to be honest, I think that's I think that's good. Because there's some knowledge to be gleaned from each of them. It's it's why I don't really mm. like to. It's why I don't like to lock myself into any ideology. I've had someone that not so long ago actually asked me, "Oh, what what ideology? What political ideology do you subscribe to?" Or something. And I was like, I, "I don't," because I'm happy to cherry pick to a degree, right? Mm-hmm. I can say, "Okay, generally, I lean sort of towards free market, conservative slash libertarian." ideals for the most part but i'm not as far as like being an anarcho-capitalist or a full-blown true died in the wool libertarian anarchist like no no state no government burn it all down yeah i got i don't i don't go that way because i don't know i just think it's too it becomes too religious and ideological and you feel like no matter what you have to stick to it and it's Mm -hmm. like you know what if there is something that and and it's also you know, given our starting point, okay, we're not starting from scratch. You're starting, there already is a big state government, all right? That, that already exists. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like, like I can empathize with anarchists, but realistically, I'm like, well, the state's not going to suddenly be like, you know what, guys, like, we're just going to abolish ourselves and let everyone do their thing. It's like, it's too, it's too far gone. You've had thousands of years of the government existing. So I lean towards making it smaller and more narrow in terms of what mm-hmm. it may do. But in terms of abolishing it completely, I'm like, that's, that's a pipe dream. Like I, I, get the, I get the idea and the thinking and some of the logic and stuff behind it. Although I do have some questions about how it actually works. Just like, you know, if I'm talking to someone who's like a full-blown socialist communist who wants, I mean, with that, you've got enough examples of what it actually results in to yeah. clear why that's a bad idea. But I can understand why, like, in their head, in theory, it sort of could work. I also understand why, in theory, pure anarchism could work. But I think both of them, I think they, they're, they're too ideological and they forget about just human nature and how stuff works in practice. You know, once, once you yeah. take, especially if you take, yeah, take the U.S., you've got what, 350 million people. I'm like, look, if you had like a, a little village of 50 people, yeah, anarchy would probably work. Communism would probably work. If you extend that to 350 million people who are totally disparate, don't have kinship, oftentimes don't even speak the same language, totally diverse in every sense of the word, who don't really have any bond or care each other besides living in the same country, I'm like, this ain't gonna work, you know? And then when you've got bad actors and you've got people who are, you've got criminals who still exist, you've got people who are gonna wanna seize power, I'm like, 
yeah, e- either one, like any extreme to me, I'm just like, it's, yeah, yeah. I just don't, I just just don't think, yeah, I just don't think, I think it's too idealistic. I think you might want to lean one way or lean the other way, but in practice, what it always boils down to is some kind of, some kind of compromise realistically. Well, I think one of the shames is that it's become so much a part of people's identity now that it seems like everything is a war zone, you know? So one of the things I like to do is I like to see how and compare how MSNBC and Fox News report (laughs) on the same breaking it so I, there was a thing about the whistleblower for trump mm-hmm. and the reporting was polar opposites on both and i felt like i don't really know the truth here and what's going on and it's become i think the winning has become more important than the truth yep and therefore people have started to uh, uh, their politics and their media have become part of their identity so there's very little reasoned debates which is why I've actually become quite a fan of Rogan because I think he's very good at allowing for a reasoned debate, mm-hmm. whether you're a conservative or whether you're a liberal, whether you're left, whether you're right, whatever you're leaning, he, he allows for a fair discussion. And I think more of that is needed. And I actually think it's a shame that there, there isn't a better meeting in the middle of people on the left, on the right, and trying to see like, right, where do we agree? Where do we disagree? Where can we, where can we work together? Everything now has just become a fight. Every election, like... We've got it now in the UK. We're going to have this election. It's going to be awful. It's going to be everyone fighting, everyone warring with each other. And it's just going to be crap again rather than figuring out, like, what is it What is it we're trying to do here? And in some ways, it makes me become apathetic towards politics. Mm-hmm. And, and being apathetic is fairly healthy, to be honest. I certainly mm. think obsessing over politics is, is very unhealthy. Mm. And I think you see that both in the real world and online. I mean, ult- ultimately, what I, what I always say, I maintain this position is that your success or your failure, your happiness, your sadness, whatever, is not going to be determined by which party, which person is in the White House, in Parliament, whatever. Unless they, go, unless they do something really, really extreme, okay? Then unless they start some you know, crazy war or they want to implement some tax policy that's going to you know, gut 90% of your income or something like that, then for the most part, I mean, if I never watched the news and wasn't on social media at all, and I just spent time in the UK, I wouldn't be aware that we've changed prime minister, like had three prime ministers in the past three or four years or whatever, right? I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. be aware of it. If I went to the US and I wasn't just aware of all the stuff going on, I wouldn't be aware that, oh, oh, the president changed from you know, Obama to Trump. I didn't even notice. You know what I mean? Like in terms of day-to-day life, you know, pe- people get so emotionally caught up in it. And I, I understand there can be some, to a little bit, it can be fun because it can be a little bit like a team sport. But when it gets mm-hmm. to the stage where, just like with sports, right? It's fine to have a little bit of rivalry and bickering and yeah, I like this team, huh? You like that team, taking the mick, whatever. But when, just like with sports, right? Football hooliganism is something I've always found totally stupid. I'm like, wait, you, you, wanna, you wanna beat people up? You wanna, <laughs> you, you wanna beat somebody up because they like a team that you don't, uh, you're not even playing on the team, right? You're, you're, just, you're just a spectator. And this is, you're so obsessed and emotionally connected to this thing that you think it's sensible to bottle someone over the head for wearing a different jersey. And that's what I think is like crazy in America when you're seeing people getting attacked for like wearing, wearing a MAGA cap or, you know, this, just some of the stuff. I'm like, yo, chill, man. Like, it's really not, it's really not that deep. You can have your disagreements. It goes with everything, right? It's the same with religion. I'm a religious guy. I'm yeah. a Christian. I always have been. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, surrounded by Muslims. I've got Jewish friends, atheist friends, Hindu friends, but whatever, right? The whole idea that we're going to, okay, we disagree on this one thing. So yeah, let's, let's fight. Like, let's get our weapons. And it's just like, it's ridiculous. It's, it's so, so silly. Real Talk with Zuby is sponsored by Gumroad.com. Gumroad is a platform that makes it really, really easy for creators of all kinds to sell their products, both digital and physical. It's what I've been using for my latest book, Strong Advice, Zuby's Guide to Fitness for Everybody. Gumroad makes it really quick, seamless, intuitive, and easy to sell whatever it is that you want. You can get started in just a few minutes by going to gumroad.com, signing up as a creator, and setting up your product. Did I mention that it's free to use? It makes it really quick and easy for you to set up and sell your products and get paid every single week. And it also makes it really easy for buyers to pay you with credit card, debit card, PayPal, various payment methods. 
It works well on mobile as well as on desktop. So I highly recommend you go check them out, whether you are an artist, a podcaster, a creator, a musician, whatever it is that you do, check out gumroad.com. That is G-U-M-R-O-A-D.com and get started today. Gumroad.com. I think you made a really interesting point up there and I'm going to add to it in that, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 41. So I've lived through new labor and I've lived through conservative governments. You know, I've lived through both Mm -hmm. and generally speaking, my life has had the same trajectory and the things I've had in life have come from just working hard. Now, Look, I recognize I've been lucky. I went to a good school and a good area, good supportive parents. I know some people grow up in abject poverty. They have terrible parents and they have really, really poor situations. But at the same time, I don't fundamentally believe a change in government will change your life that much. And I think if you believe, like it's different right now with Brexit because some people are really hanging on to if Labour get in, they can save Brexit, blah, blah, blah. But generally speaking, I don't believe much changes from government to government your life is going to be dictated by your relationships, how you treat people, how hard you work. You know, it's not, if you fundamentally believe a change of government is suddenly going to make you wealthier or your life better, I think you've, you've been sucked into a myth. Yeah. And this is the problem with politics is that the politicians make us believe that they're going to make our lives better because they'll say something like, you know, maybe Bernie and Corbyn attacking billionaires. Well, Mm -hmm. the reason you're miserable is because they're billionaires and we're going to take the billionaires money and give it back to you. And, and then you're going to be happy or vice versa. And, you know, there's a great tweet the other day, someone put out, it said, billionaires are not the reason you are poor. Yeah, of course. It's because people think it's the people think it's um, zero sum. Yeah. You have people who don't understand basic economics. So they think that this idea that rich people are just hoarding all the money and everyone else would have it if so many people didn't. I think, uh, funnily enough, I was talking to someone about this just yesterday. And I think perhaps I have a theory on this. I have sometimes I come up with random psychological theories. I have an idea that it's because with a lot of other things, a lot of other things are zero sum. Okay. If you think about food, if we make a meal, if we have a pizza, and we've got, we need to share a pizza between eight people, okay? And one person just takes half the pizza, then that's not cool because you literally do have a fixed amount of it. And you, unless you're going to buy more and spend more money, that, that's all you've got. And maybe for like thousands and thousands of years, right, human beings have been dealing with scarcity, right? Like real scarcity, food, water, territory, things that are genuinely zero sum. So I think people's mentality automatically kind of assumes or is programmed to think that money and economics kind of works the same way. So there's just a set amount of money in the UK. No more is ever created. It's never lost. There's just a set amount. So you've just got this one guy or these 10 guys who have like 60% of it or 80% of it. And these 10 guys are just keeping it away from all the other millions, which is not how it really works. But I think people believe that's the case because... One, they've never studied economics. And two, I just think mentally people are hardwired to think that if someone has a disproportionate amount of something, then it means that they're keeping it away from everybody else. Because in some cases, that is true. So I think that's, you know, I've done no research onto it, on it, but that's my sort of hypothesis of why so many people buy into that idea. I think there's some conditioning as well alongside education. You know, it wasn't until very recently when I discovered Bitcoin and I was introduced to Austrian economics, which I'm not 100% sold on, and and, and libertarianism. Like, I grew up believing there is one way, and the one way is there is a state and there is a government, and they tax us, and that's fair and right because that's the way it is. Mm. That's just what I believed. That's so funny. I've always thought that was unfair. Well, uh, I've never liked it. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, I always see my dad working hard and, you know, talking about paying tax and didn't like it, but. I just believe that's the way. That's just the way it is. You, mm. you work and you pay tax, you contribute to society. I never knew that there's these alternative views that actually, you know, we should have no state or a smaller state and we should have limited tax. And, you know, there could be different ways of doing it. Sure. So you become conditioned to it. So if you're conditioned to believe in there is a state, then I think you're conditioned to believe the state owes you something. Mm. You know, I remember, you know, seeing like an interview recently with a lady complaining about the number of, you know, free school day school she gets for a no junior school or no preschool for a child and thinking yeah i can she believes the state owes her something mm, mm. you know and i'm much more now in a place where i believe 
actually, I'm not going to rely on the state. I don't believe the state owes me anything, but I also don't believe I owe the state something. Yeah. You know, and I want to challenge it. And that's, that is, I think one of the reasons that exists is also education because, you know, we grow up at school. We, you know, we're, we're not taught, we certainly weren't at my, my school taught these alternative ways of thinking. You know, when I studied economics, there was no thought of Austrian economics. We were talking mm. about Keynesian economics. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we didn't have debates. We weren't made, we weren't given the opportunity to think of these alternatives. Now, I can introduce it to my children. It's, it's really funny. My son came to me the other day and he's like, Dad, are you an anarchist? I was like, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'd like to say I am, but I'm not. Uh, but, but I think they're really cool. And I definitely <laughs> like, like a lot of what they stand for. And he's like, I really like this. I was like, well, what do you like about it? How did he, like, well, sorry, how did he come across it? So he'd read an article, or, or was it an article? He'd seen one of my podcasts. He, he always Googles me okay. and finds stuff. <laughs> and he found this anarchist, like this libertarian thing or anarchist libertarian thing and looked it up. He was like, he was like it sounds really cool. I, you know, I, I don't want these rules. I don't want the government telling me what to do. And I was like, okay, I like this boy. Let's, let's talk <laughs> about this. Let's talk about why. It's like, well, I don't, and then it came to, well, I don't really want to have to do my homework. And I was like, well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Hold on, right. <laughs> why do you not want to do your homework? But then again, it was interesting. It was like, well, why am I learning all this stuff? I don't want to learn about biology and chemistry. I find it boring. So it just became this really interesting conversation, and, and I'm glad he did it. But I just think the education system and the way we're set up, I just don't think people are, are taught there is – I don't think they're taught enough that there's an alternative. And I think if you also if – you, if, you know, if you grow up in a deprived area, you know, and you and – you, have this conditioning i think you have a belief that this is unfair you know we're in a cycle here where my parents grew up in deprived areas i'm in a deprived area i don't have the opportunity to get out and i just think this conditioning exists yeah i just think it's very disempowering yeah you know, i think it's so disempowering because as soon as you're looking for someone else or another entity to fix and solve your problems then you know mentally you're you're going to be waiting for them to do it and you're going to be feeling angry, you're going to be feeling entitled, you're going to be feeling envious, jealous of other people who have more than you in any way, shape or form. And I just think that's a really toxic mentality. And also the reality is there are so many problems that, you know, maybe it would maybe, maybe it would be nice if the government could solve them. But mm -hmm. we have centuries, if not millennia, showing that the government cannot solve certain problems, right? People have certain issues, things that they go through, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no government that would have prevented, you know, the little personal hell that you went through in, in, in you know, a few years ago. There's no government that's going to make parents treat their kids better and totally stop any kind of familial breakup or, or anything like that. There's no mm -hmm. government that's going to suddenly help cure people's personal issues, whether that's physical issues, mental health issues, whatever. You know, sure, maybe there can be little things that, that help here and there. There can be services provided. There can be support provided. That can also be done through, through charity. That's very worth saying. Ultimately, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to you. Like, and I, I think people don't like hearing this, but I think there's nothing more empowering than realizing, man, look, your life is in your own hands. You don't get to choose where you start from. There's certain things that are going to be outside of your realm of control. If you, if you get involved in a totally random accident or some random disease or ailment or something like that hits you that that's not your fault but for 99 percent of cases it's on you and people don't like to hear that but at the same time it's like yo once you realize that it's like man hey okay i can just do what i want i can just make a podcast i don't need permission i don't need whatever there oh i can just make a youtube channel i can just start a business i can just start a clothing company like whatever it is people are sitting there waiting for someone to tell them it's okay to do something, waiting for some kind of permission. And I'm just like, yo, it's, it's there. Look at the tools you have. You've got, look at the smartphones we've got. You've got in your hand, in your pocket, you've got a supercomputer. That's a supercomputer, yeah. A supercomputer. You've got supercomputer, HD video camera, internet device, GPS, communication device that you can reach billions of people just through your phone. Like that is insane. I mean, imagine... Imagine if someone knew that device could even exist like 20 years ago. People would be like, no, nah, there's no way on earth. That, what do you mean in 20 years everyone's going to have a supercomputer video <laughs> camera in their pocket? It's nuts. Well, dude, when I did my fanzine, when I was 15, you know, I'm kind of trying to even remember if we had the internet. 
I don't think we even had the internet. I was about mm. 15. Maybe it was just about, but I definitely wasn't using it. So what I used to do is I used to take a dictaphone and interview the person. I would then transcribe that into a word processor on an old uh, Amiga computer. Wow. I would then have to print, print that out, but I'd have to line everything up and print the other side. And then I'd have to go to my friend's as a state agent to print the copies and sit there all day printing and then I had to fold them up and staple them right yep. <laughs> if, if I'd have had what I had then I could have literally just interviewed click publish and it's away yep. you know I could create a blog yep. so the tools that people have now there are incredible and amazing one thing I do wonder though and you know knowing the university you've went to and know my upbringing like it's definitely a little bit more privileged i wonder what the mindset is and you know do we need to be a little bit more considerate for some people who have grown up in deprived area or you know maybe maybe they don't have advanced phone or they just they don't even think or realize they can do these things oh gosh yeah. you know because yeah there's a re i mean look you'll be aware as i am as the major gang and knife problem in london you know mm -hmm. what, what is the reason these people in these you know neighborhoods are getting drawn to gangs and, and, and getting sucked into this you know do we owe a sense of responsibility to try and help people in more disadvantaged positions and is that the role of the state or does that come down to being voluntary i don't know i know collectivism is seen as evil but i just think we have a moral responsibility to help others i i agree with you absolutely i mean for me that's even religious right as a christian <laughs> one of the key points of it right a lot of people want to trash religion these days because it's kind of the trendy thing to do but it's like one of the more the core tenets i mean what what was jesus's life it was going around and helping people disadvantaged people it was hanging out with people who are not in his circle people were saying you know, oh, why are you hanging out with these people, these sinners? You're with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and whatever. And he's, you know, it's the whole idea, if you kind of get to the core of it, is about volunteering and helping others and everything. And again, I just, I don't think, I think the state is failing at it because I don't think the state can do it. The state can't. It's not very good. No, the state can't force people to stay married or to not have children you know like it to it, it's like these are individual things and if, if you're going to have freedom because people like freedom but if mm -hmm. you're going to have freedom people need to work within a certain moral framing and societal framework for things to stay in order so you, you were talking about knife crime it's same with gun crime in the in the u.s it's same with gang crime all that stuff what is the if, if we're going to look at all these things objectively and realistically, what is the common component in all these things? Fatherless homes and broken families. That's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. the, the tool changes, the weapon changes, but with the vast majority of people involved in these things, primarily young men from um, certain backgrounds, both ethnically and age-wise and inner city-wise, these are typically, it's, it's the same pattern. And pe people don't want to talk about that because that's something that the state can't directly fix, right? So people want to say, oh, we need to regulate this gun or maybe knives should only be this length or maybe you should only be able to buy. And I'm like, look, you're, the focus is on the tool. That's a distraction. Like, here, here's what I say. Here's what I say. You can, you can quote me on this. I think people are looking for government level solutions for spiritual realm problems. Okay, big statement. That's what I think is going on, mm -hmm. right? When people, that's why nobody has an answer to these mass shootings in the U.S right? Joe Rogan will sit down and interview different politicians. Okay, what do we do about mass shootings? How do we reduce them? Nobody has a good answer, right? Mm -hmm. A knife crime in the UK, how, how do we do? No, nobody has a good answer because the elephant in the room is that family breakdown and fatherlessness is the common thread. And for a whole bunch of reasons, some even just being political correctness and not wanting to um, feel like people are attacking single mothers or attacking certain families or anything like that, which is, which is not the point. But it's known that, I mean, in the U.S., the stat is something like, I mean, if a boy grows up without a father, he's something like, is it 13 times more likely to end up in prison? I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? Mm. If, there, if there were any other factor that makes something 13, 1,300% more likely, right, you'd be looking at that factor and go, okay, that's the one that we, need to, we really need to talk mm -hmm. about, not how many bullets are in the magazine, right? It's like, come on, man. So I think until people kind of get really real about that and want to talk more about culture and societal fabric and morality and all that stuff, which is a, which is a hard conversation, right? I think that a lot of these issues are, are going to 
persist because you can't just, there are certain things, yeah, you can help by regulating or legislating, but there are some things that are just always going to, are always going to evade that. If people want to hurt each other, the problem is having people who want to hurt each other, right? If you're talking yeah. about violence, it's, that's the problem, right? If you have a society or a place or just an individual who wants to hurt another person, they're going to use whatever is at their disposal. And we've all got, we all have lethal weapons at our disposal, right? But mm-hmm. most, of us, most of us don't want to hit someone with our car or stab someone with a kitchen knife or anything like that. So I don't look towards the tool. Sure, certain tools can make it easier, no question. But um, the problem is just having people who want to inflict harm on others. And I don't know all the answers to how to totally deal with that. I mean, you can look at places where that's really rare and where that barely happens and see, okay, what are the, what's the common thread here? How are people raising their kids? What do they generally believe? Why don't they want to hurt each other, right? And then you could look at places where you've got huge amounts of crime, lots of gang violence, lots of everything and see, okay, what are the factors here? Why, are they, why is this culture... Why is this society producing so many people, again, primarily young men, who don't value each other's lives or want to hurt each other? And to me, that's really where the conversation needs to be had. And I feel like right now, everyone's having that conversation on the government and policy level and you know the legislation level, but people aren't talking seriously about the sort of root, which is society, culture, morality, ethics. Does race come into it? Does race come into it? Yeah, because um, obviously with knife crime in London, the majority are reporting it's young black men. It is, yeah. And do you think there's a fear that people will, by raising that as an issue, saying that this is young black men from fatherless homes, mm-hmm. that it will, be, it will create some kind of race war? When, and, and is that a relevant point to bring up? That's a good question. I don't... Like, I feel think, uncomfortable even asking it. Yeah, but, no, no, it's, it's, it's a fair question. I think that, I mean, in terms of the demographics, in terms of both who's the victim... The, the victims and the perpetrators of these crimes, certainly in London, there's no question that it's primarily young black men. No question. Gun violence in Chicago, same thing. Baltimore, same. Like there's certain cities you can look at. I would, I would say in that sense, yes. In the sense of the race being the sort of factor, I don't think so. You've had places like Glasgow, You've got certain areas uh, still in the UK and also in the US, which where it might be young, young white men who are stabbing each other or shooting each other, whatever the case is. I think the the factors, the other factors are the key factors. I think it, I think it's cultural climate. I think it's people's attitude towards life and the valuing of life and the sanctity of life in general. I think it's um, it's families, it's parenting, it's people, it's it's uh, poverty is obviously a factor. It's people having or not having ambitions and opportunities. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of different factors there, but I would agree that because of the, the race factor, it, makes it, it adds another level uh, taboo to it, right? It adds mm. another level of people not wanting to be honest and have that honest conversation because I don't know if they, I think, I think people fear being labeled and I can, under, I can understand, yep. right? Because we're living in a time where anybody will say something and someone just wants, someone is just there you know, really like just, just ready, ready, you know, chomping at the to bit, jump on them, to jump in yeah. and call them a racist, even though, yeah, <laughs> even, even though they're not right. You can, you can see it when they have this debate on TV. I saw the one with like Piers Morgan when he was talking to some yeah. other people and people are just waiting. Oh, I really want to call him a racist. I really want to call him a racist. And then they see that little opportunity and people need to, people really need to get over that stuff, man. People need to get, well, I, you know, sometimes I, you know, I want to ask questions, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's race or sex or whatever. I sometimes want to ask questions and there's times where I'm like, I really need to frame this in the right way because if I frame the question in the wrong way, I'll be attacked for asking the question rather than what the question is about. Yep. Yeah. And that's, and that's that becomes a real problem. Yeah. It is a problem. And, yep. and I think this is this kind of social justice warrior kind of mentality that we now have and it's just become you know really difficult mm. it was like yesterday i started having a yeah you'll love this i've got a friend who went to school with we're really good friends and uh we trolled each other on politics he invited me to join the labor movement on facebook and i was like haha good troll and we started talking about it socialism and he was talking talking about you know the workers should own the means but he went around and then we ended up getting down to uh, a gender in the end. He said, oh, I'm, I'm not having that because I was talking about trans rights. Okay. And he was like, I'm not getting into this debate. And I was just like, well, the only thing I want to talk about, and I thought of you at the time, I was like, 
just do you do you not understand there's biological differences and do you think it's right that a man can become yeah and i'll probably get the terminology become then a trans uh female compete in MMA and crack someone's skull or become a cricketer and get an average of 146 when the next nearest average is 32 <laughs> or can win all the... I was like, do you not understand? There's bio... And, you know, rather than answering me and agreeing, he didn't. He said, well, you know, we're getting a better understanding of what gender is these days. I was like, I'm pretty clear that the, the vast majority <laughs> is biologically one gender or the other and occasionally there are some you know some people who unfortunately are born in a situation where you know their gender is very kind of confused mm -hmm. biologically less than one percent like, yeah less than one percent but even in raising this i'm like I, I know like even now someone might listen to the zuby and go oh you're a trans hater blah, blah, blah. and i'm just trying to have the conversation yeah, i'm just trying to ask the question i don't think sgw's listen to my podcast so i can speak no, probably not yeah, I think well, you identify as a female. Exactly, exactly. I just switch it up on them as, as soon as necessary. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll be honest. This is one reason why it's easier for me. And I almost in a way prefer talking to like, you know, center to right leaning people in this day and age, just because you don't have to deal with all of this crap. You, you can be more honest and frank and have open discussion without worrying about someone either getting offended or wanting to get offended on someone else's behalf or whatever it is. Like you don't need to tiptoe, walk around eggshells. And I'll tell you why this is important to me, right? You were talking about something like uh, knife crime in London. In the US, mm -hmm. they, they talk about the most obvious example they always talk about is gun violence in Chicago, right? And I am a young black man, okay? So I am actually in this demographic that is both primarily the target of the crime and at the moment, commonly the, the perpetrator, okay? And I don't like that, <laughs> okay? I, I, don't, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that hundreds of young black men are being murdered, okay? By, you know, thousands, like every, every year. And I don't give a crap about political correctness because I actually care about the issue. You see what I mean? I'm trying to resolve. If we want to resolve this issue, but people would rather like virtue signal and, and float around it and dance around it and not get anything done and not even have the conversation, then I'm not interested. Because I'm like, look, I actually care about solving this problem. And, and if you've got a problem, you need to diagnose it prob properly. You know, if, you're, if you've been shot in your leg and we're here, you know, talking about your, your a mosquito bite on your shoulder, while your leg is bleeding out, then I'm like, yo, can we, can we talk about the leg? And people are like, no, 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 it's not right to talk about the leg. Like, we can, we can't. I'm like, look, the leg is bleeding. Right? <laughs> right? I, I care about the leg. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I want to. And that's, that's the problem with over political correctness. Political correctness makes sense to a degree in terms of, you know, not going out of your way to be super offensive or just say stuff that, you know, totally is dismissive of people's feelings and things like that. I get that. But when it starts obfuscating the actual truth, you talked about mm -hmm. another good one, right? You were talking about the whole trans and sports thing. Obviously, I had a video about that earlier this year that went viral. And I was like, look, frankly, this is ridiculous. Okay. I'm not saying anything to attack any people, any individual, any group or anything like that. That's how people try to skew it so that they can try to, you know, get their little SJW points or whatever. I was like, nah, like I'm not having this. I'm not playing. I'm not playing your game. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is what it is. These are the facts. Okay. So we need to, we need to talk about the facts because this has genuine repercussions. You were talking about someone being physically having their skull broken in MMA, right? You're talking about women losing scholarships, losing, losing their sports, losing their races, losing their time. Like this is legitimate repercussions here. So I'm happy to sacrifice so-called political correctness for the time being in order to really have this conversation. And that's what people are not so good at at the moment. And I do think the pendulum will swing back. And I'm starting to see that happen. You're seeing, you know, a lot of the people who are, you know, running podcasts, having these type of conversations, all that talking online. That's important because it, you know, allows people to talk about ideas and stuff without it being and just just get to the core of the issue. You know, yeah. just, just get without to the, the core fear. Of the, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's important. But I think it's important to stress that it's because like, I genuinely, genuinely care. I think you, you got people who want to seem like they care and have the appearance that they care. And they care more about looking good and saying the right thing 
than doing good, right? That's the thing. It's like, are you doing good? Even if it might make you kind of look like a, a short-term villain, right? Are you doing good? Or mm. are you just towing the line and saying what you think you should say, even if the repercussions, especially long-term, are very potentially damaging? So that, that's the way I look at it personally. Well, I think it's because liberal political correctness, politically correct opinions are safe in the modern world, whereas conservative opinions are a bit more difficult because there's a, there's a certain shame with having holding certain conservative opinions. You know, you can go on, if you go onto Facebook and, you know, amongst your group of friends, and if you were to put in a message saying, oh, isn't this great? You know, a trans, trans female has, has uh, you know, finally found an identity, is now able to compete. And, you know, there's going to be no shame with that because people are going to, people are going to empathize and go, oh, isn't this great? And mm, I don't no know. wants I, to argue back with it. I, I might try it. I don't think so. Well, <laughs> I, I, what I've noticed over the last year, I've been putting out more kind of conservative posts on Facebook. Yeah. So I use Facebook as a research tool for my, my show, you know, yeah. and I really want to test people's opinions. And I've done it a lot around Brexit. My engagement on Facebook is is gradually uh, tra- the trajectory is towards zero now because I think people are thinking, like I, I put out the I, I tell you what I put up today just out of an interest, just a little test. I put billionaires are not the reason that people are living in poverty. Corbyn's class war and Marxist leanings are dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. I am trending towards zero. I think people are starting to think of me as like a <laughs> as a Nazi. I think these opinions are okay. So, I think it's very. Especially in UK, I think it's a lot easier to be conservative and public about that in the US. I think it's a lot harder in the UK. Mm, I don't know about that. I think, well, the, US uh, more, I think the US is more por- a lot more polarized. Conservatives in the US are more mm. conservative than they are in the UK. They are, but there is with the UK. If, see, in the US, if you're, you can be conservative and hardworking. Mm. Whereas in the UK, if you're conservative, you're a Tory boy. <laughs> And a Tory boy is a toff who's been very privileged his whole life. Then why do they all vote Labour? Yeah. (laughs) This this is the thing. It's like, it doesn't, uh, yeah, I I don't know, man, but I'm just me. I I think it, um, to be honest, in your personal case, I'd imagine it's probably because you're someone who's more shifted politically. Yeah, I think so. So I think because, so obviously you'll be connected to a lot of people who, you know, might be more left-leaning. To be honest, I'm, I'm connected to all, all sorts of people, but I've mm. always been, I've always been where I am. So I don't think there's that much like that I'd post that suddenly people are <laughs> sort of like weirded out by or something. It's just like, okay, whether they agree or disagree, it's like, oh, that's, that's you, right? Like my friends already know what my views and opinions are on a lot of things. So you might get some healthy debate going, but that's why I was, uh, someone was saying, someone asks if I'm worried about getting canceled. And I'm like, I, I can't be canceled because my audience doesn't cancel people, right? That's not my, that's not my audience. I never, even in my mm. music, right, as a rapper, I never sort of, I never pandered to the social justice crowd. Never, right? So I, I never, I didn't kind of build up my platform by pushing that kind of message and that attitude and stuff like that. So as a result, I don't need to fear putting my, messages out there in a bold way because it's like well the people who already don't like me or are turned off by like they they've gone away a long time ago you, you see what i mean yeah and anyone else who's still there even if they don't agree with me i've got tons i've got tons of fans and supporters who don't don't agree with me on everything and that's good but those who are there like they can at least they can deal with it right they're they're happy to have the they're happy to have the the conversation and the back and forth and you know whatever it is and, and understand that it's not based in any kind of hatred or this, this is the thing is people being able to understand mm-hmm. that someone disagreeing with you or someone having a certain opinion, 99.9% of the time, it's not based in hatred or animosity or bigotry or anything like that. It's just a different opinion, right? People have different personalities. People grew up in different ways. People have different ways of looking at the world. People even have different ways of interpreting the data, right? You get a lot of people like, oh, if you disagree with me, it's because you're not educated or you haven't read a certain book or something. And I'm like, no, I read, I've read the same books you have, actually. I've, sometimes people will say, oh, you need to read this book. And I'm like, I've read it, right? But my opinion on it or what I drew from it doesn't, my conclusions are just not the same as yours, right? Do you know what I compare that to? Go ahead. It's going to sound like a funny comparison. VAR. Okay, yeah. I'll tell you why. VAR was seen as the big solution to mistakes by referees in football matches Mm -hmm. but what people fail to recognize is you can't get rid of subjectivity 
Yeah. So you can solve an offside because it's a line, mm -hmm. but you can't solve a handball in an area because one person will say that was intentional and one person say it isn't. Exactly. So it doesn't matter what you read, that's, you cannot solve subjectivity and people take things in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Or, it, you know, it would, be like, it would be like me thinking someone's an atheist just because they haven't read the Bible. <laughs> you see what I mean? And it's like, yeah. no, like two people can read the Bible and one person is like, okay, I believe this and I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to follow Jesus. Another person will be like, hmm, this has too many inconsistencies. It doesn't make sense with science. So I reject this and I don't believe. And yeah. someone, or someone else may be like, hmm, nah, the Quran, the Quran is a better book. I want to be a Muslim. You, you see what I mean? So it's like, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, man, just looking at the time so this doesn't go on for so long. Yeah, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your new podcast, Defiance. Yeah, so this came on the back of uh, what Bitcoin did. So I did the Bitcoin podcast. I've been doing that for like two years. And I occasionally started to do other non bitcoiny interviews. So I interviewed Ross Ulbricht's mum first. Uh, mm. You know, Ross Ulbricht, Silk Road. That's so. the guy who founded Silk Road. Yeah, so he's in prison for the rest of his life. I, I went out to Austin, interviewed his mum, and really enjoyed that as an interview. Uh, I interviewed a sex worker. I did some interviews around Venezuela. And every time I did an interview, which was like a sister topic of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. the, the interview's happening because of Bitcoin, but we're not really talking about it. I just felt a lot more passion for it. You know, it was, I felt like it was just getting into new... I think it's because you're learning something new, right? Yeah. So what happened was I ended up going out to the um, Oslo Freedom Forum in Norway, invited by Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, met a bunch of people, uh, some, had some interesting stories, and I just kind of realized, like, I've got another show in me. I want to do something else. So I, I created this show, Defiance. I've had, I think, Interview 9 came out this week. I interviewed you know, North Korea's most senior defector, uh, Taeyong Ho. I interviewed him out in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, I just interviewed Pete Patterson from The Guardian discussing slave labor at the Qatar World Cup. I just interviewed Molly McHugh on information warfare. So all these kind of really interesting subjects, which are, I think, highly relevant for today. And yeah, it's been going like eight weeks. I mean, you know what it's like with a podcast. It's yeah, a grind, man. right? It is. You know, grind out those shows and grind out those uh, subscribers. That's awesome, man. And uh, where can people find both of your podcasts? So uh, just Google. It's whatbitcoindid.com. Uh, but if you find a search for what Bitcoin did, you'll find with me. Defiance is a bit harder. So it's defiance.news. But if you find me on Twitter, at Peter McCormack, you'll find me. And uh, yeah, that's where I am. Awesome. And final thing, why should people buy Bitcoin? Right. You know what? <laughs> There's no reason they should. Oh. I'm not going to say you should. What I'm saying is <laughs> okay. you should... You should definitely look into it and read about it. And if you think you want to opt out of the, the system, or you think you want to opt out of government, then perhaps buy some. But if you buy it, like hold, have like a multi-decade strategy. Gotcha. Peter McCormack, thank you very much for coming on the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, brother. Thank you for having me on, man. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.